We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 59, and we're starting a brand new series of messages today called All I Want for Christmas. Now, here's the question. If I were just to, you know, I'm going to uh, date some of you in this this room. There used to be a, a game show on TV called The Match Game. Anybody remember, how many of you remember Match Game? All right. And they would, how many of you had no clue what The Match Game is? Let me see those young hands. All right. All right. So there was a match game and it would say all I want, like they would do something. Then we won't use theirs because some of them's going to get a little weird sometimes, but they would have a fill in the blank and you tried to match what other people would say. And so if we did this as the fill in the blank, all I want for Christmas is how would you fill in that blank? Now, now here's the truth. The most popular answer today would not have been the most popular answer 30 years ago. Thirty years ago, if you'd asked this question, people would have thought of other answers. And maybe you did as well. Maybe you thought of a gift that you want. Maybe it's something that's been in the back of your mind. When I was a kid, if they would have asked me this, it might have been, all I want for Christmas is Castle Grayskull or the Nintendo Entertainment System or like something great, right? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Uh, That wasn't very strong. All right. But you had whatever you had, a Chatty Cathy doll or a, a... a uh, cabbage patch kid, right? Or a uh, tickle me Elmo, like whatever it was when you were a kid. Um, I don't know. T- some of you tinker toys or Lincoln logs, whatever that may have been. What? Lincoln logs. See, I didn't realize that'd be a big hit. So, so whatever it was, that's what you'd fill in. Or some of you would remember the older song, right? All I want for Christmas is. My front, right, my two front teeth, right? And that gets brought around for kids as well. But 29 years ago, a diva changed all of that. And now when you hear All I Want for Christmas is, for many of you, a song starts playing in your head. It's a song that was released 29 years ago, but did not hit number one on the Billboard charts until the year 2011. It's been number one on the Billboard Hot 100 most popular songs in the country chart every year during December since 2019. It is incessantly playing in your head sometimes, right? A typical earworm, all I want for Christmas is you, right? Sorry for those that now have the dun-da-da-da, like going in your head, right? One of the things that I learned is that as I grow older, when I think about the wish list and not the songs or the toys, my definition of what goes in that blank changed drastically over the years. And maybe for you, what you want for Christmas this year is not something that could come in a box. It's joy or peace about a situation or deliverance. Reconciliation. It's a prodigal returning home. It's a relationship with your parents. It's comfort in your loss. As David read earlier, every year, for for a couple thousand years now almost, churches have celebrated this season of Advent and they've given the four things each week, themes about what comes to us because of Christmas. Hope, joy, love, and peace. This Christmas, what I thought, this Advent season, 
felt the Lord leading for us to talk about the most important gifts we get at Christmas. And it's those four things. And so today we're going to begin talking about hope. And we're going to look at hope from Isaiah chapter 59. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is because the reality is Advent is a study of a longing for, a remembering of the longing that the Israelites had for a Savior and for us longing for, on the other side of the Savior coming, the Savior coming again. And so Advent is often a celebration of the promises that God made to his people throughout those years when they were waiting. From Genesis chapter 3, when God brings judgment and yet says that one is coming who would crush your head to the serpent. That Jesus is foretold in that moment through the prophets, through the deliverance at the Passover, through Isaiah and Jeremiah and those prophets that declared that God was coming after the exile and back and that God was sending his son. In Isaiah chapter 59, we find the Israelites in a very difficult moment. And what I want us to focus or think about today as we walk through this is that Christmas at its essence is a story of hope. And yet the doorway to hope is often hopelessness. That it's only when we get truly to the end of ourselves that we can find the hope that is in God. And that ultimately hope is a person, not a plan or something. Isaiah chapter 59 says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear. Now we're going to stop there because what is happening here is that the Lord through his prophet is answering an accusation from the people of God. So this is while they are, as best we can understand, in captivity They are waiting for deliverance from their Lord and nothing seems to be happening. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Their temple has been desecrated. And they are crying out to God, where are you? What happened, God? I thought you were a faithful God. I thought you were a God that would protect us. I thought you were a God that would keep us. And they say to God, we can't trust you. And anytime you see the Lord's arm is not too weak, that is, the Lord's arm is a depiction of the strength of the Lord. And so they had come to him and said, basically, are you not strong enough to save us? Has another God taken your place? And his ears are deaf. God, have you not heard our prayers? Have you not listened to us? Have you not understood what we are asking of you and in the midst of this what's happening is they are saying to the lord god where are you are you not strong enough to change this are you not listening have you not been hearing i thought you weren't going to abandon me i thought you weren't going to forsake us what happened lord now it's easy to look at the israelites and go what are you doing and yet how many of us When situations arise that are difficult or hard or unexpected or we never thought would happen to us, how many of us look at the Lord and go, where are you? God, what happened? Lord, I I just didn't think you would let this happen. I mean, I know that I'm not above anybody else, but Lord, I just didn't, I just never thought I'd be here. 
The problem is when we start to ask those kind of questions of God, we sow doubt into ourselves, and in the end what results is we refuse or are timid or decide not to go to the very one who can help us in that situation. When we question God's faithfulness, we distance ourselves from the one who can help. We don't go to him. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago, and a guy named Matt Chandler was speaking, and I'd never heard Matt preach before. And I, I, actually, we, I wasn't even there. It was one of the early days of live stream. We had gone to Orlando. It was the preacher's conference the night before. And we had gotten to Orlando. And one of our kids developed strep after we got off the plane. And so we took them to an urgent care in Orlando. You know, that's the best time is when you're in a, for, a city you don't know. And you're taking a kid to get tested for strep. It's an awesome time. And so we, we're back in the hotel. And I'm watching Matt Chandler And he's speaking, and he said the most ridiculous lie we tell ourselves is that when we fall down and we sin, that we can't run to God because he'll be mad at us. He said the only place when we mess up that is appropriate to run is straight to the Lord, and that's what the cross teaches us. And yet when we begin to doubt, we step away. We begin to question God. I'm not saying that that's not just human nature. I'm not saying that's not part of our sinful pride sometimes to say, God, where are you? What happened? Why are you letting this go? And that's what the Israelites were doing. And God says, wait, 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 wait a minute. It's not because my arm is too short. It's not because I'm too weak. And it's not because I don't hear. Understand that. Look at verse 2. Here's the thing that's separating you. Your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongues mutter injustice. No one makes claims justly. No one pleads honestly. They trust in empty and worthless words. They conceive trouble and give birth to iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave spiders' webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die, crack one open, and a viper is hatched. Their words cannot become clothing, and they cannot cover themselves with their works. Their works are sinful works, and violent acts are in their hands. Their feet run after evil, and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. They have not known the path of peace, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made roads their roads crooked. No one who walks on them will know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. And we're going to stop right in the middle there. And I'll tell you why in a moment. So they go to the Lord and they say, Hey, God, where are you? <laughs> are, you not, are you not strong enough anymore, God? Do you not hear our prayers? And God says, The distance between us and where you are is not because of me. It's because of you. Your sinfulness, your evil, your wickedness is the reason there is a separation from me. Now, you don't have to, it's not going to go back on the screen, but he says it as clearly as he can in verse 2 when he says, Your iniquities are separating from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. He so he does not listen. He says, 
it's not because my ears can't hear. It's because your sin is preventing it from getting here. Now, here's what's interesting about that. What we have at the beginning of this passage is their accusation of the Lord, which is unfounded, and God's accusation of them, which is completely founded. He describes in this passage their sin in multiple ways. He uses the three main words of the Old Testament for sin. He talks about inequity. That's the moral uncleanness. That is the being dirty. It's it's what we talk about like defiled. And when when over in um after they come back from exile and they start intermarrying and he tells them to get rid of it, it's like clean yourselves that you have been dipped into this blood that is not right and you are unclean in this moment. He uses the word for transgression, which I love the the technical definition of that, which is high-handed rebellion, which means you just don't care that you're sinning. You are going against what God would have you to do, and you don't care. And we've experienced that in our lives, in relationships, when there comes a point when you know the damage you're about to put on someone, you know the damage that's about to come from what you were going to say, and at that moment, you don't care anymore. Because you've had it. God says, you're unclean, and you have high-handed rebellion against me. And then there's sin. There's just times you pull back that arrow and you are aiming at the wrong spot and you're trying to do the wrong thing and you miss the mark completely. God basically says to them in this moment, the issue here is not me and my inability. The issue is you. Paul Tripp says that none of us like to hear that about ourselves and that the moment we do, our inner defense attorney riles up. Well, let me, let me explain. Let, let me tell you what that why. Let me, let me explain what's happening. Let me, let me, well, here's my side of the story. I, I saw someone this week talking about how we always think we are in the right. He talked about that if you watch um, any of the protests that have happened in any place over the last many years, you will rarely, if ever, see a sign that just says, it's my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. It's some organization's fault. It's some other person's fault. It's somebody else out there's fault. And the truth is, the fault lies with us in most situations when we're honest about the things happening in our lives. Not all. And I'm not saying there aren't injustices we need to call out and there aren't things that we need to point out. But my point is, as Jesus talks about, we need to make sure we're on firm footing with ourselves and understand what's happening inside of us before we accuse other people. And ask the question, what's the problem with me that is causing this? What is my sin, my transgression, my iniquity that's contributing to this? And we stopped right there because what's about to happen is the pronouns are about to change in this passage of Scripture. In verse 8, they are they. In verse 8, they are they. What does it turn to in verse 9? It is us. And so in Isaiah 59, we have this subtle switch that happens right in the middle of a verse even that goes from they accuse God of being distant and God said, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Oh yeah, it is my fault. Notice what he says from here. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. 
We hope for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. We all growl like bears and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are within us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering lying words from the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing and whoever turns from evil is plundered. This whole setup begins with them falsely accusing God, God rightfully accusing them, and them coming to an understanding of their own sinfulness. And here's the truth. What we just read is exactly where every one of us is without Jesus. No justice, no hope, no ability to understand our own sin, Growling like bears, moaning like doves, wanting something and it not happening. That very picturesque moment of groping along the walls as a blind man trying to find our way and yet not being able to get there. We're like the dead among those who are healthy. And here's where the hope comes in. Verse 16. The Lord saw that there was no justice And he was offended. He saw that there was no man. And he was amazed that there was no one interceding. God looked and saw our hopelessness. That we had no one advocating for us because no one could advocate for us. Because we are all part of the problem. We all are sinful. And a sinful man cannot intercede on behalf of a sinful man before a holy God. Then it says this. So his own arm. Remember the question at the beginning, God, is your own arm too short? It's not too weak. He says, so his own arm brought salvation and his own righteousness supported him. He put out righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and enwrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coast and the islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and his glory in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is with you and my words that open your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from your mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. So the Lord looks 
And there is no one that can stand in the gap. And the people are in their sin. And there is no hope for them. And it says that he stretched out his right arm and supported him with his own righteousness. And he sends his Redeemer. This is, after all, the path of redemption. The path of repentance. God recognizes the sin in our lives and opens our eyes to it. In fact, there's this moment in the midst of their suffering when they're saying, God, are you too weak? And God basically says to them, don't you think that I understand what's going on here and I'm allowing this to happen in your life so that you might turn back to me. And when we do turn back to him, the Lord delivers. Now, this used to be a cycle again and again and again in the life of the Israelites. And that cycle was broken on the cross when the Redeemer took our sin upon himself and died. And that plan was put into motion in Genesis 3, yes, but in a baby in a manger on the day of Christmas. So what do we gather from this passage? There are a couple of principles I want us to see and then a couple of applications for us in the midst of this. First of all, we need to understand that no matter where we are, if we're a child of God, if we're a follower of Jesus, if we have been saved, then God hears your prayers. Now, the truth is, I know that this can be an abstract sermon, but for some of you in this room, you're going through ridiculously hard circumstances in your life. And you have been praying to the Lord in the midst of that. And you're asking the question, God, do you hear? God, are you listening? God, where are you? Just be assured that God always hears. And if he's not answering the way you want either, he's delaying until the time that it is. He's waiting on you to return to him or he has something better for you. God hears your prayers. Secondly, we know from this passage, because of the promise he says at the end, from generation to generation, God will bring you through your suffering. There is an end to it. God will deliver you from your suffering. I think about another passage where they're in the same state. They're in exile. And there's a letter written to those in exile by Jeremiah. And in the midst of that, to this people in exile, he tells them to settle down where they are, Jeremiah 29, to make it as good as they can while they're there. And then he says in verse 11 of that chapter, while they are in exile, away from home, taken captive in a foreign land, he says, because the Lord knows the plans he has for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you what? A hope and a future. God will bring you through your suffering. And wherever you are, he will bring you through. Now let me just say this. That doesn't mean he's going to bring you through tomorrow or next week. And we're not even assured that it'll happen in this lifetime. But we are assured that whatever sufferings we have here is nothing compared to the glories we're going to have in Christ. Nothing. And I would just say to you, if you're at that place in your life where you're like, I can't imagine how things could be any worse. Imagine for a moment the glory you're going to experience in Christ if that is nothing compared to the glory. Another thing we learn from this passage is our hope is not found in the circumstances, but our hope is found in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. 
It's not found in where we are or who we can depend on outside of the Lord. And then lastly, what we discover here is that our hope is found only in Jesus. I love how when you dig into, and we don't have time today to dig into all the symbolism and the pictures that are here. When you dig into that last part where it says God looked and he couldn't find an intercessor. God looked, he couldn't find one to stand in the gap. God looked and no one was there. That in the book of Isaiah, he says, but one is coming and I will stretch out my right arm. And Jesus is described in scripture at times. The Messiah is described as the right arm of the Lord, the one that is extended from God in power. And he says, and his righteousness will back it up so that he will be able to stand firm in the midst of that. And the pictures that are there show us this redeemer that is coming and that only Jesus saves. We're just six months from the Brazil trip, and I'm so excited. My plan is for the first time in about a decade to go back this year. And when I get to Brazil, if I get to preach, every time that I've preached down there in the past, every time that I will preach going forward, the message will be simple and to the point, and it is simply that. Only Jesus saves. And while we take that on the mission field, it's important for us to understand that only Jesus is where we have hope here. So what do we do with all of that? Just two things and then we're done. First of all, is in difficult times, lean into Jesus. Instead of the temptation to blame and to distance yourself from the Lord. The number of times as a pastor that I've heard someone say when I haven't seen him in a while or I try to follow up or things are kind of going wrong in their life and they'll say, well, this happened and I just couldn't go to church anymore. I stopped reading my Bible or I stopped praying or I couldn't be around people anymore. I just decided it wasn't right. The number of times that I want to say you did the exact opposite of what you were supposed to do. That when times get hard or you mess up badly or something goes wrong in your life, the solution is not, hey, take a step back from the Lord. The the solution is lean as hard as you can into Jesus, into his word, into your prayer, into your relationships with the people in God's kingdom, in our church. If this is your church, lean into your church. And the second part of this application is just trust his plan. As hard as that is sometimes, trust His plan. Believe that He is working all things together for good for those that love Him are called according to His purpose. Understand that He is going to work out your salvation in Him and He is going to carry it on until the day of completion. Understand that He is patient with us, not delaying His We're coming for any other reasons than that other people can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And trust that when we cannot see the future, we know the one who holds it. And believe in him. Place your hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, even as we talk about that first gift of hope, Lord, I realize that there may be people in this room that are, Lord, they feel hopeless in this moment. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what's going on in their life. They don't know what's happening. 
And Lord, this morning, they, they just need to hear from you. Maybe it is they need to examine their own lives and see what it is that's causing them distance from you, distance in their relationships, distance in the way that they see themselves and what's actually happening, Lord, that they would be shown their hearts. Lord, that in the midst of that, they wouldn't think they got to fix themselves up and get all better, but Lord, that they would realize that you want them to come just as they are without cleaning themselves up, Lord, but just to come trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that in those moments when we find ourselves in a real difficulty, we'll put our hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.